0: From the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Gannon, Director of the Center for the Advancement of Faculty Excellence and Professor of History at Queen's University in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is the author of the blog, The Tattooed Professor, History, Teaching, and Technology with a Custom Paint Job. Dr. Gannon's research interests include critical and inclusive pedagogy, and he facilitates faculty development workshops at universities across North America. He is a regular contributor to the Chronicle of Higher Education and is the author of the book, Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto. Dr. Kevin Gannon, welcome to the CoLab.
1: Thanks, Josh. It's great to be with you today.
0: Kevin, so what does having radical hope as an educator mean to you?
1: Well, I think the important part of that would be thinking about radical in kind of the root sense of the term. The word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. And so I approach it in what is your root level? What is your fundamental, your basic commitment to work from a place of radical hope means to me that hope is more than just some sort of airy and insubstantial concept that you just sort of say to make yourself feel better. But it's something that deeply informs your practice at a root level. So in other words, when I'm making even what might seem to be really boring and mundane decisions about, well, what am I going to do in class on Tuesday or how am I going to phrase this section of my syllabus that i'm that there's an ethic there's there's a set of lenses that I'm looking through, so to speak, that helps guide all of those principles. The very root at the
0: very foundation of my practice is an ethic of hope and how does that? hope inform the decisions that you make about what you're going to do on Tuesday? That's a great follow-up question. In this case, it might be useful to think of what are the alternatives? So I would argue that
1: in, in our higher educational environment, the opposite of acting from hope would be acting from fear. And so what does fear-based decision-making get you? Fear-based decision-making comes from a place where you might be stuck in a scarcity mentality where you're thinking about what you don't have as opposed to what you do have, where you're thinking about deficits that students have as opposed to the strengths that they may bring to the table. And so... Staying away from that place is as important a part of our practice that is as anything, I think. And, and having said that, it's eminently reasonable to react to everything that's around us in higher ed right now and feel fear and feel anxiety. And I'm not trying to minimize that. I certainly don't want to be kind of a Pollyanna type character here. But I do think that if that's what guides Everything we do, that we sort of surrender to fear, to hopelessness, as opposed to hopefulness. And that doesn't mean that we just sort of blithely ignore everything that's around us. But to me, what hope means is a commitment to the future. Even if we don't know the exact shape that future takes, it's a commitment to something more just and more sustainable than what we're experiencing now. And so doing that work, what's the next step in that process? What can I do in class on Tuesday that advances that work? Because at higher ed, we are in spaces where we are in that very almost literal sense, shaping the future. And I know it sounds corny, but it is true. Like where else right now would can you find an environment where there's so much impact to be made across such a large scale, but higher ed. And so if we're not approaching that work intentionally and mindfully, um, then we
0: lose out on some really important opportunities. Something else that I really see at the root of your practice is solidarity. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about how solidarity informs not only what you do on Tuesday, but just everything, the way you conceive of your role as an educator. There's a couple ways I would answer that question. One is that I think it's very easy,
1: especially in times in which we find ourselves now, to default into a sort of adversarial relationship with our students. And I don't think that's a great place to be. Our students, and, and we, we are allies in this. We can't be adversaries. We want the same things. We want our students to be successful. They want to be successful. The details may differ in how we get there, and our vision may be articulated differently than a first year student just coming to campus but we want the same things and we have interests in a campus space and a higher educational space that gets us there. So that's one thing I think is important is you you can't create a community of learners if you don't feel solidarity with students. You can't build community, which we know is at the root of meaningful teaching and learning, if you really don't feel a sort of connection with one might say, a solidarity with the other people who are supposed to be in that community. But I also think that we need to, to understand and direct that out to one another as well. And there's a couple ways that I think in higher ed that we often fall short of this. One is with part-time, adjunct, precarious, and contingent faculty, whichever label is most appropriate for an institutional setting. And of course, who are teaching a majority of the credit hours across higher education. Those of us who have been full-time faculty have really done a poor job building community with our part-time colleagues. Um, We may not be able to solve the adjunct crisis overnight, but that doesn't mean that adjuncts should exist in a sort of, they should be seen and never heard kind of sense, or, oh, we don't really talk about those people. Why can't our adjunct colleagues be integrated into the life of the department? Why can't our adjunct colleagues lead some development work for us on teaching and learning in a compensated way? How do we have a definition of faculty activity that includes our part-time colleagues? Some folks have done this really well. When we see increasing unionization across higher ed, that's the sort of thing that I think offers us a really promising model in this regard. And I also think that uh, from the faculty perspective, faculty have not always done a great job Be in community and solidarity with our staff colleagues. And I say this as someone who used to be faculty and is now classified as staff. I've stood in both of these camps, and I think it's really easy for faculty to forget that our staff colleagues on campus are doing the real sort of yeoman's work that the institution runs because of their efforts. And oftentimes, our staff colleagues are engaging and interacting with students much more frequently and in a much more intense way than we might as classroom instructors. And so, if we're not in solidarity with our staff colleagues, many of whom are paid less or paid at inferior rates and wages compared to a full-time faculty member, for example. If we're not working to improve staff working conditions in addition to faculty working conditions, then I think we're doing it wrong. So solidarity needs more than just faculty understanding that we need to band together. We are a constituent part of a community, and everybody in that community matters. We need to demonstrate that in material, substantial ways, not just
0: rhetorical. I love your holistic view of universities as places where everyone in the community is engaging in teaching and learning in some way and has to really be in it together meaningfully. So I think that's really wise and it allows for a more hopeful view of what these communities can be, a more utopian view at the end of the day. Well, yeah, absolutely.
1: Our entire campuses, physical and virtual spaces, our teaching and learning spaces And so I think we really need to be cognizant as to what teaching is happening and where it's happening, because the answer to that is really kind of everywhere. Students learn in the classroom, students learn in an online class environment, for example, but they're learning in the financial aid office. They're learning in the dining hall. They're learning on the quad, in the dorms, in the parking garage, whatever. They are learning things. And so then the question becomes, well, what are we teaching there? For anyone who's familiar with the idea of the so-called hidden curriculum, that's a way of theorizing what are these teaching and learning experiences that are happening that are often unnoticed and unintended by those who are doing the teaching, Uh, because in many ways, those are significantly more powerful and lasting than what we might call the formal curricular experiences. And so I think understanding campuses as a whole, as teaching and learning spaces, helps us as faculty or as classroom faculty in particular understand and connect with the work that our colleagues are
0: doing in a way that honors its importance. I love this idea that we're always teaching and learning. And some of the time what we're teaching and learning or communicating unintentionally is not the message that we'd like to be giving out to the members of our community to increase feelings of belonging and all of these things that we know keep people there and keep people successful. I know that in your research as a historian, you study structures of inequality in society and how systemic inequities can either be perpetuated or transformed to be more equitable. Our classrooms mirror our society. So how do you bring those lessons from history into your practice as a teacher? It's a great point. My own sort of research proclivities
1: you know, led me to, to apprehending in a way that a lot of folks experience from a variety of different disciplinary lenses or personal experience. What the reality is when it comes to things like structures of inequity, of injustice, of, of large-scale socioeconomic or sociopolitical discrimination, for example, is the default for those processes is to reproduce themselves over generations. When we take a historical lens to the institution of enslavement in this country, for example, even though the Civil War ends one, regime, one constitutional order, if you will, that enshrined a system of chattel slavery, involuntary servitude and race-based enslavement and coercion does not go away. It morphs into other things. The key is, is you have to actively intervene in that process of reproduction. So that process of reproduction has got to happen by default, and so it's one of those classic things that, like the saying goes, even if you choose not to decide, you're still making a decision. And so to do nothing is actually to perpetuate that reproduction. It's not a neutral stance. I'm drawing a lot on insights from things like critical theory, for example, which may be illegal in half the country by the time this podcast goes to air. Critical theory gives us some really good tools to look at power, and in particular, power imbalances, and ask ourselves, how did these things get there? How do they become so entrenched? But then most importantly, what do we do to unplug, right? How do we intervene to stop that process? And so in a teaching and learning context, what, what does it look like to intervene in the process of power? inequalities being sort of subconsciously reproduced. And so when we do work on our campus to talk about equity in a meaningful way, which is equity work aimed at remedying injustices of the past. So when we talk about things like access and accessibility, we are undoing the process that has embedded itself in higher education over the generations, again, reflecting our larger context. When we look at things like affordability, when we look at things like epistemic justice, who is in our curricula and how? and why. What are we asking students to do? With what materials are we asking students to engage? The physical environment of a classroom, even something that seems to be kind of a niche audience, let's do research on the physical space of active learning classrooms. And someone might say, why are you researching what tables and chairs do? And the answer to that is when you go into a classroom with seats arranged in rows and bolted to the floor, all of them facing towards the front, you are physically creating a power imbalance. Whatever educator goes into that space, They are going to have to adjust to that physical reality too, even if that's not the way that they approach their own work. There's a spectrum of ways that we could go about undoing these structures, dismantling these structures. And that's simultaneously intimidating because it feels overwhelming. There's so much that we have to do, but I think also empowering because there are a lot of on-ramps into this. And so whichever one you take, you're still doing this kind of work. You're still doing the work of dismantling the things that need to be dismantled. And it's the that's in front of you
0: at that particular moment. I think that that's important. I can really feel your passion for reshaping the structures of higher education at every level, both within your classroom and now as an administrator, trying to bring that about in your larger community. And it sounds like you're just really committed to creating a more egalitarian society, a more just society at all levels. And I was really struck by the use of the word manifesto in your book's title. Your book is called Radical Hope, A Teaching Manifesto. I know as an historian, you would be familiar with Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. He he writes uh, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggles. So in that vein, I'd love to hear how you would frame your critique of traditional or conventional systems of education. For you, how would you say the history of all hitherto existing pedagogy is, or perhaps the history of all hitherto existing higher education? Wow,
1: what a great question. I would actually sort of complete that sentence by referring back to what we were just talking to, this process of reproduction. For so much of its history, higher education in particular tends to replicate the very things that it sort of rhetorically commits to, to fighting. And so on one hand, you have teachers and students who are committed to this vision of a critically informed, more just and sustainable future, but they're trying to enact that in an institutional framework that not only mirrors but actively tries to perpetuate a status quo. And so that's a lot of the tension that we find in higher ed comes from that sort of fundamental misalignment. And so sometimes you see it like what we saw in the the social movements of the 1960s, for example, with students occupying the administration buildings. That's where that sort of misalignment might be most visible. But I would argue that's the tension that kind of bubbles underneath the surface. But there are also spaces of possibility. There are places where power relationships are established in higher education. What does it look like to pull those levers for different purposes than the way they were pulled in a generation before. Where are those interstices? Where are those spaces that we can sort of move our way into? and and leverage possibility as opposed to inertia. But again, that's a tall order because when we talk about structures of inequality, higher education has been one of those structures for most of its history. It is a structure, however, that contains tools that are more visible and perhaps more easily picked up by those who are looking to dismantle
0: those structures of inequity. I love your phrase, spaces of possibility. I think it goes back to that acting out of hope, a sense of hopefulness rather than fear and seeing new possibilities in spaces where formerly it just seemed like a kind of black or white type thing. This is how it's done and kind of reshaping those structures. So one structure I know that there's a lot of discussion about now is grading. And you write that academic binaries like you know, either you pass or you fail, dismiss meaningful habits like self-examination, critical thinking, questioning, and mistake training for education. Tell me more about the distinction that you would draw between training and education again, to to put my historian hat on, right? Like the word education
1: comes from the Latin word educare, which means to draw out or to draw forth. That's a really interesting way to look at what is it we're trying to do? And it's sort of aspirational best. What are we trying to draw out? What are we trying to draw forth? And that helps us understand that the potential that's inherent in every one of our students, that we can help them draw out and draw forth things that are at least in inchoate form already inside them, so to speak. Uh, But it also gets us away from, from, you know the language that we so often use in our day-to-day work when we talk about things like deliverables and products and outcomes. I am all in favor of really good assessment. I think we need to tell the story of learning in ways that are compelling, in ways that are meaningful, and in ways that underscore the importance of what it is that we're doing in higher ed, classroom by classroom, student by student. But I worry sometimes that the assessment process doesn't tell the story of actual learning. It's potential that we might lose. And so when we think about what's the, what's the way that a lot of us approach assessment, we, we tend to think of outcomes-based assessment. So here are my course outcomes, my program outcomes, and did a student meet those, yes or no? And what's the evidence that they met them? And I think it's important to be able to prove that if we say students will be different as a result of this particular thing. We should be able to show that that has indeed happened. But if all we focus on is outcomes, we lose the, the story of what I think is the most important part of the work that's being done. Because if somebody comes into my class, for example, and has taken courses on history before and is really proficient in this, it has the cultural capital, and they really know stuff like how to write a good research paper and all that, and they get an A in the class, great, they met the outcomes. But how much did they really learn? were they really transformed by that experience? Whereas the student who comes in, let's say not having had any coursework in that particular subject. And this is a new set of habits of mind that the student is trying to pick up and that that it's difficult for that student. And they're being asked to do things that stretch the, the realm of the possible for them. And maybe they get like a C plus or a B minus. But where did more learning occur? And so if we're focused more on just outcomes, we miss the process. I think one of the things that we could do a better job of at higher ed is to actually think about the process as the outcome. What are the processes that are taking place? We all pay lip service to the idea of lifelong learning, which at least suggests that we know that learning never stops, right? But the way that we assess it so often assumes that it does. That gets at this larger distinction. Education is one thing, training is important, but if we see training training as the sole end of this enterprise, then why? What are we doing? And that would also mean that everything we're telling students and their families to recruit them to come to our institutions is a lie too. And I don't think that we would want to put ourselves in that kind of position.
0: I really like this notion of the process of learning as an outcome in and of itself. And reconsidering the ways we assess. So it's not just you got an A and that's better than the person who got a B, but actually what happened in that process? And maybe there's another way of looking at it and telling that story that can be more equitable, more inviting, and uh, ultimately more meaningful. Speaking of this idea of education as drawing out or drawing forth, so often we think of ourselves as the ones drawing forth things from students, but in so many ways, They are drawing so much out from us it's really a two way street, so I was wondering if you could tell me about a moment in the classroom or a relationship with a student that opened your eyes to something new and forced you to reconsider a belief or practice that you had in the classroom.
1: Well, there's a lot of stories that I could think of that were that type of important, pivotal moment for me. And I think the, the one that that stays with me the most is one that I actually write about in the book. Very early in my career, while I was still finishing my PhD, I had a, a full-time uh, teaching gig at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. And I was teaching the survey course, like 40 to 50 students a section. And I had a student who was a little bit older than the traditional college student, probably mid-20s woman who was taking the class, you know, while working full-time, which so many of our students do, and she had started to really miss a lot of classes, and, and at that particular point, I'd been sort of socialized in a way as a young teacher to think that when students were skipping class, that that I took that personally, right? Like, how dare you miss this class? Ah, oh, the lack of respect. Implicitly, I made that all about me rather than, as I might now, with the benefit of hindsight, think about, well, what was the process that led to the decision to either do X or go to class, and then that student choosing the other thing? I just thought about it in terms of that we're very self-directed. And i it told one of the student's friends in the class, like, hey, can you reach out to her? She's starting to really miss some work. She's in trouble. She needs to come and meet with me. For a while, it didn't happen. And so in my head, I've sort of written this student off. I'm like, oh, well, tough luck. You make choices. Here are the consequences. You know, just sort of all that stuff that I would tell myself to be like, I'm holding students accountable. And and of course, what it turns out is the, the student's friend does come to me one day and she says, she is going to come and talk to you. I just talked to her a little bit ago. She's undergoing some stuff and wants to talk to you personally. Personally. and so I'm like we'll see what happens and and so she comes into my office the next day for the, for this appointment that we're going to have talk about because she's really at this point failing the class and I'm prepared to be like hey sorry nothing could be done too late but when she comes into my office man she looked like hell it just I remember feeling like oh my god like you look really sick like you do not feel good right now. And what it turned out was, is the student confided in me that she was trying to get off a of heroin and had methadone clinic appointments that took place the mornings before our class met and that she would feel so physically ill and just absolutely devastated after those treatments that she could not make it to class. And here I am, at this point, I'm like 28, 29. So I'm just a few years older than her. And so I'm sitting at my desk, just like, oh my God, what assumptions had I made? And I had crafted this whole narrative based on what I thought was true about student behavior. And here is this student that just completely shattered that. Like her experience, the fact that she was still trying to go to school, hold down a job, And kick a heroin addiction, one of those three is a full-time job in and of itself. And so at that point, I really like, who am I to stand in the way, if this is what she wants to try to do, who am I to say that the work she's doing doesn't matter? to to try to continue this. And I just felt awful about the assumptions that I had made. I benefited myself as an undergraduate from the generosity of spirit from some of my professors because I wasn't a great student for several years. And here I am in a place where I could pay that forward. And my first instinct was to not do that. And so that was a really pivotal moment for me to like, where are we? What are we doing and why? And so the student and I sort of talked, Okay, how could we get back on track? She had talked about her reaction to the thing was stabilizing a little. But she was feeling a little bit better here are some moves that we might make to get you caught up but also to help you progress in the class here's what we might talk about with some of your other instructors and so she ended up staying in the class and she got like a beat like, I mean which to me is astounding I would not have been able to do that person like I know that and so that was a really important lesson for me and a victory for her that's the most important part of it but But for me, it was a real lesson to sort of be a lot more reflective and self-aware and intentional about doing so than I had been up to that point. And that moment has stayed with me ever since. And this was, I'm trying to do the math in my head, but this was a good like 20, 21 years ago. It was an important thing for me to learn, and I'm glad I was able to learn it in a situation where the student was still in a position to be successful and that I had not foreclose that opportunity to a point where we could not recover. Right. That's what I'm most think.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And it's so human. So often we think it's about us. It's a personal affront. <laughs> um and it has right. nothing to do with us. They're going through something completely different. And if you can meet them with compassion and with hope, again, you're able to kind of work out a solution that's going to allow both of you to be more successful and transform at the end of the day, which is of that goal of education it's interesting that you tell that story because you describe yourself as having been a punk in high school and not a straight-a student which probably isn't the background of many folks who go into academia so how did you find your way to where you are today as a professor and how do you authentically bring your background as someone who wasn't always so excited by school into your work with students
1: even with a lot of advantages around me, I still made poor decisions. I still adopted some strategies that in the end were probably not the greatest choice to make. My college academic record, certainly for the first three years, reflects that. And so now when I see students who I'm just like, what are they doing? Like, oh, I had to put myself back in that place where it was like, I know I had professors who were looking at me and going, oh, what is this kid doing? Right, Like he's fumbling away these opportunities. And so we have to take paths sometimes that get us to where we need to be, but it's a pretty circuitous route. And that was the the path that I took. I I try to extend a similar flexibility and grace to students who I see maybe engaged in that same process. I was the beneficiary of that type of understanding and in some cases intervention from faculty members who who saw me, who knew what my goals were and saw the potential in me and helped. And so I feel like I'm sort of obligated to pay that forward. And the other thing that I do to try to bring this into my practice is we talk a lot about helping students understand that it's okay to fail, that we want them to learn from failure, that obviously fail, you know, failing doesn't feel good. We're not successful at stuff we do all the time. Like the whole point of a scientific experiment is this thing might not work and we need to ask why. But in practice, we often don't make it very easy for students to learn from failure. And students come to us in many ways being conditioned by their by their schooling experience up to, to that point, that failure is bad, that it's the end of a chapter, that it's a stigma, that you have to avoid it, that a, an academic failure means you are a failure, like the inability to pull those things apart. And so I try to model for students that it's okay to fall short. Don't let the fear of failure close off opportunities and options that you might have. And so I share some stories with students. The first article I published when I first got the reader's reports back from the editor of the journal, I had the proverbial reviewer number two who absolutely just bludgeoned my paper. What the hell is this kind of thing? And so I share that with students. I'm like, look, this article got published a year later, but here was the first reaction of one of the referees. This was the feedback I got. But I also had the editor say, okay, there's a lot here, but we can work through it and here's how we're going to do it. And so modeling that for students, like this is how I, a quote-unquote professional historian, was able to do this. This is the process that we're going to model here. Feedback, critique, get better. And to do so in ways that are nicer than the ones that I receive. But understanding that sometimes the feedback we get isn't what we would prefer but it's not the end of anything. It's an inflection point, but it's not the end of the story. And so giving students permission to fall short, to to not be perfect, to be a little messy, to take that risk, knowing that their instructor understands what it's like to take a leap and miss the target. How do we recover from that? So having that conversation early with students, I think, creates a space where they're able to take some of that pressure off and do the kind of things that we hope that they do in college, take those intellectual risks, get out of your comfort zone, try something new and let the journey become the most important part.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And so hard, especially nowadays, there's such a focus on grades. And for so many students, it's not about learning, but it's about grades. How do you deal with that? Well, I think we need to realize and and need to, and, and a lot of folks have that, and have had the
1: courage to say this, and we're hearing it more, which is, I think, good. But grades are probably the single biggest obstacle to actual learning. In education. And and that's just, that is the way it is. Like, I think we have a raft of empirical evidence, quantitative and qualitative, that suggests that this is indeed the truth. High grades don't necessarily correlate with what we would term as meaningful, a high degree of meaningful learning. Grades reward cultural capital more than they do actual learning. And then back to the earlier point we were talking about where grades are fixated on an outcome when sometimes what's really important is the process that leads to that outcome. And we have no idea about that because a grade doesn't tell us anything about that. And of course, it's easy for me to sit here and say grades suck uh, because they do, but then it's like, okay, what are you going to do about it? I think the the prominence that ungrading has, has now achieved in the sort of what I might call everyday conversations around higher ed. Like this was a thing that even two or three years before the pandemic, when you talked about ungrading, if the person that you were talking to knew what that meant, they were either like a fellow traveler and you felt like you were part of a secret society with them, like fifth column subverting from within, or they were like, wait, that, that is completely subversive and, and enemy to everything that we stand for in higher ed and a complete abrogation of standards or whatnot. And now, ungrading is just sort of like, oh, yeah, I've heard a lot of people talking about that. Oh, yeah, somebody in my department is doing this. It's become almost routine. Maybe that's overstating a little bit. So that heartens me because I think one thing that we learned during pandemic pedagogy was that all of a sudden, the processes and way and metrics that we thought were telling us one thing actually weren't telling us those things. Things. and being forced to let go of some of that stuff during pandemic pedagogy, I think was actually a very freeing thing for a lot of us. And so now we've got this great range of conversation. We've got books coming out. We have webinars. We have articles in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, Inside Higher Ed. My faculty colleagues, one of the things they're most interested in hearing about and, and doing work in is alternative approaches to assessment. And this is true, I think, in institutions, certainly the ones that I've been fortunate to visit over the last couple of years, too, like this is top of mind stuff. And what that signals to me is that there's, we have a real opportunity. We have a moment here. Where is this recognition that, yeah, grades and learning, if, if there's a correlation that's in spite of rather than because of the way that this whole system is created, traditional grading traditionally done could do a lot of damage to the things that we say that we're trying to do and hire it. So how do we do this differently? And the fact that that is now the question and one that seems to have a broad consensus behind it is to we should be actually asking this question. That's a huge step and a really important moment that I think we'll look back on and see this as a really almost a tectonic shift in higher ed that maybe gets us to a place where we can think about assessment and we can think about feedback and we can think about learning in ways that are divorced from this arbitrary method of sorting, which has replicated
0: so many of the things that we're actually trying to undermine in IRS. Are there any specific ungrading practices that either you used or you've seen you used on the campuses you worked on that you're like, that is great. It's really worked well.
1: I like the phrase alternative approaches to assessment or alternative approaches to grading because that foregrounds the fact that there is a spectrum of approaches. Like we got a lot of tools in the toolbox and the tools that work for me in the context of a hundred level history class, for example, may not be the ones that are gonna work for you in like organic chemistry, but there, that's okay because there are other tools that will work for you well in that context for me what has worked really well is i adopted kind of a labor-based contract grading system i do a lot of writing work in my 100 level history classes and i was after something that helped students see that the it was the work the process the doing that was essential and so centering my grading around this labor-based contract really gave students the freedom to, to do the work and not be so obsessed about, will it turn out perfectly? No, it's the work that matters. You do the work, you're going to be fine. And so honoring that and, and getting rid of what I thought were some significant equity gaps in instruction. Who's had this stuff in high school and who hasn't had the opportunity? People were coming into this class with a, with a wide range of previous exposure to the material. And I was trying to find ways to make that not be a barrier and to make that not reflect in the the sort of assessment outcomes in the class. So for me, a labor-based contract system was the one that resonated most closely with those goals. I am a huge fan as well of specifications grading, which is a similar style of approach. I've seen examples of how that's been deployed in STEM classes in particular, where I think that that's a really good way to get out of some of the worst features of a traditional grading system, but still have a structure that makes sense to students and helps them benchmark their own progress as well as you as an instructor knowing that You're helping students get the things they need to take with them down the road into their continuing coursework in a STEM field, for example. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have letter grades and it would just be written or spoken feedback with students done in that sort of dialogic collaborative form. Some colleges, I think Evergreen State is one of them, approach grading in that way, but it's also a really big workload and not sustainable for where most of us find ourselves as faculty members. But short of that, I think some of these approaches like specs grading, for example, like labor-based grading, those are approaches that I think could be integrated pretty easily by instructors and if followed intentionally could, could lead to some really powerful collaboration between teachers
0: and learners. Do you have any examples of ways you've seen academic technology integrated into classrooms, whether it's yours or faculty you worked with, that really just bring something to life and open up a new avenue for learning for students? I can think of probably
1: hundreds of examples if you gave me enough time, but a couple that immediately spring to mind, talking back about grading and assessment. I think one of the most powerful tools that is now much easier to do than it might've been a few years ago is to give students feedback in either via audio or video rather than traditional written feedback. And so it's more of a conversation between instructor and student. I'm working through a paper with a student with a screencast where they can hear me talking about their work, where they can get my vocal inflections and tone of voice. And that stuff hits a little different than just text-mediated feedback. I think there's tremendous potential for audio and video feedback to students. I've seen folks who've used it very successfully. If nothing else, it's a time saver. And that appeals, I think, to a lot of people. But I think that there's a lot more there in terms of Having that conversation with students and an assessment feedback sources, it can be really rich and powerful. And the tools are right there for us to use. I am a huge fan also of social annotation, of collaborative work online and digital spaces. I love Hypothesis. For those who aren't familiar, Hypothesis is a tool that I could go out on the web and it basically creates an overlay on a web page. And you could leave comments in there or images or all sorts of links to to other websites and stuff. It's just as easy as leaving comments and like track changes in a Microsoft Word document. But your students could be in this space working with one another asynchronously, remotely, even if my class is a traditional face-to-face class. But we're having this parallel discussion this case, it might be a document from medieval world history. Some of the language is hard and some of the material. And so students are in there collaborating with one another, annotating it. You know, here's what this means. Or I looked this up in Wikipedia and here's the link to the entry. And we have this whole thing unfolding in this collaborative space that we're doing. So I think social annotation, again, a tool that has a lot of possibilities that we're really just beginning to tap into. And it's a community building tool. I think the technology that, that for me moves the needle the most. How can I build community? How can I get students connecting with one another as human beings, even if it's mediated through this digital tool? And so things like hypothesis, things like multimedia feedback, those are two examples, I think, of trying to humanize what could otherwise seem to be a fairly impersonal set of processes.
0: That's great. I also love social annotation tools. Just such a good way to make both individual and collective thinking visible and also just provides those artifacts of learning. And also it's just writing to think, like actually the process of writing and putting those thoughts together is a process of generating new ideas and putting new ideas together, making connections both within the concepts and also within the community of learners. So it's very rich. We have an integration with Perusall in our school, so I think it's pretty mm. similar to Hypothesis. Uh, yeah, but... it is. I've
1: seen it used. I'm less familiar with it, but I know a couple instructors who use it, and they rave about
0: it as well for many of these same reasons. You published an article almost a year ago in the Chronicle of Higher Ed entitled, Post-COVID, The Personal is the Professional. In your blog, The Tattooed Prof, and in your classroom teaching, you authentically bring your whole self to the table in service of learning. How do you suggest that faculty be genuine and authentic, fully showing up for their students in ways that open new doorways for connection and meaning making without crossing boundaries? The the last part of your
1: question there without crossing boundaries is an important one because it signals like the answer to this question is going to be different depending upon who you are, where you are, and not just where physically, but like where in your career, where in your relationship to students and institutions. It's easy for me, for example, as you know, an older white male tenured academic type person to say, yes, I tell students about how I failed all the time. What are the potential problems in that for me? as opposed to, say, an early career woman of color faculty member. When we know that students tend to question the credentials and expertise of faculty of color more than they do for white faculty, uh, where we see that people who present as female are seen as less competent and less knowledgeable by some groups of students than counterparts who present as male, for example. What are some of the specific things that I do are going to be different as a result of that positionality? And so I want to be very clear about that. But I also, I also do think our students need to see us as human and whatever that looks like. That doesn't mean we have to overshare about our personal lives or anything, but I think it is helpful for us to show them that we are actual three-dimensional people just as they are. To what degree is everybody in this teaching and learning space acknowledged as and acknowledging everyone else as fully human. The better we're able to answer that question, the better off the entire learning experience is going to be. And so maybe that involves sharing stories of what happened when I tried to publish the first article. Or maybe it's when a student is struggling with a particular thing, being like, you know what, that is a thing in grad school that I just could not figure out. I struggled with this too. I, had, I hit my head against the wall right where you are right now. So here's how I got through it. Or here are the things that I did to try to go around. It. How are we humanizing ourselves? In in ways that get our students to not only see us as the full and complicated human beings that we are, uh, but to trust us. Can our students trust us? Because if students don't trust us, we can't do the things that help promote meaningful learning. Students respond to critical feedback, tough feedback better and more constructively if they have a trusted relationship with the person who's giving that feedback. And of course that makes sense. Like we know this to be true. But if we want our students to be able to do that higher level cognitive work, that is inherently risky in some cases. We're asking students to do things that they might do wrong and to do them in ways that might be seen by others. Like nobody likes to do that. And so how do we, by humanizing the spaces in which that's occurring, remove some of the sharpest edges from those asks that we're putting in front of our students? And so I think being authentic in ways that show students That we care about them and we care about the things that we're trying to do in this particular course. Like, I'm a dork for history. My students can see that I geek out on this stuff. Maybe some of that enthusiasm kind of washes out a little bit, and that's all to the good. I love the original Star Trek series, and all my cultural references to that go right over their heads because I'm older than they are. So I just lean into it, and I'm the older dorky professor. So what? But that's my way of saying I'm bringing my full self to this. I'm asking you to bring as much of your full self as you can, too, so we can do the really good
0: stuff, the meaningful and important stuff here. And I can't ask my students to do that if I'm not willing to do it myself. Definitely. That's fabulous. As the director of your university's Center for Teaching and Learning, how do you support faculty who are feeling overwhelmed and dealing with burnout and empower them with the tools to be better teachers? I have a colleague
1: who, who put it this way, and I thought that was a really, it, it was a really compelling analogy. He said in much the same way that someone can be pre-diabetic, that a lot of us are pre-burnout. So we have a set of symptoms and conditions that are serious in and of themselves and have consequences in and of themselves. And if left unchecked or untreated or unresolved, will manifest into something that is far more serious and chronic. Because when you lose full-time lines in the department, that's more service work, that's more bureaucratic work, that's more leadership work that's now being apportioned among fewer people. And so as workloads have gone up, the number of people who are tasked with doing them has gone down. We're not going to fix the burnout problem by getting far away from the pandemic. We're going to fix the burnout problem by addressing this more deep-seated structural issue. So I worry about that deeply. And so in my own context, what I try to do for colleagues... I think it's important to be approachable, to signal that I'm there, to listen. I'm I'm a person who anything that comes into our office where we consult is confidential, that I have experiences and networks that I can connect them to resources in ways that they might find helpful if they want me to. I've got... Advice. I've got some sort of material resources and other things that I can help put towards easing at least some of the more immediate type of stuff. But I also think that part of my job is being an advocate for the faculty in those administrative conversations where it's like, what are we going to do about some of these circumstances that are making our folks at least pre-burnout? What's our preventive medicine? And I think unless and until institutions are able to reckon with that, burnout will be an ever intensifying for both faculty and maybe even especially staff.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you have a two-pronged approach. One is really personal and offering solidarity and being with and coaching and resources that are targeted to the individual. And another is more structural and making really big structural changes within these institutions to make things more sustainable for the folks who are supporting the institution and keeping it alive. So, Kevin, despite all the challenges of this time, both in higher ed and the broader injustices that are present in our society, what keeps you radically hopeful? The fact that I get to do this in this space, I know this sounds like kind of a trite answer,
1: but I firmly believe that those of us who have the privilege of working in higher education have an opportunity that very few other sort of spheres have in terms of making an actual tangible, sometimes even visible contribution to shaping a more just and a more sustainable future by working with the people who will be doing that shaping, who will be creating, who will be occupying that more just and sustainable future. As the old cliche goes, we're in the seed planting business. To know that the work that I'm doing will, not just might, but will play a role in shaping the next chapter. And that is an amazing, intimidating (laughs) opportunity and understanding both the privilege that comes with that, the opportunity that comes with that. But what I would say is the kind of ethical responsibilities that come with that as well. You know, those are things that I try to hold close. And I think another part of that answer too, and again, this may sound a little trite and I don't mean it to sound flippant, but what's the alternative? What's the alternative to acting from hope? I am not a person who can sustain himself on a regular basis if I'm acting from fear or if I am detached and hopeless, if I'm cynical, if I'm apathetic, if I am disconnected from a sense of purpose and a sense of vocation. That is not a healthy place for me to be. Hopeful doesn't mean that everything's always sunshine and roses, but what hopeful does mean is that I remember the commitment to a better future. And that even on days where it's really hard to see what that may look like, I'm still doing the work.
0: As we start wrapping up, let me ask you the question I ask all my guests. Tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life. It has played
1: perhaps the major role in my life. I have always been someone who I want to know why something happens. I want to know how something happens. I want to know why something happened this way and not that way, right? And I will obsess over some of those questions. Curiosity is what led me down the scholarly path that I find myself on where I encounter something and I'm just like, Wait, why the hell is it this way? I need to answer that question. So it's like an itch that I can't scratch. Curiosity has played sometimes a negative role in my life. Like, oh hey, what does drinking this thing do? But I have always found myself in places where I just like I see books that are on subjects that are just so far afield from what I study and do on a regular basis. But I'm just like, oh, that sounds fascinating. Just this sort of eternal thirst to learn and to know stuff. No, you know, no matter how random or esoteric it seems. And I don't know where it comes from or what motivates it, but it, it definitely keeps me moving. And and I'm I'm attracted to problems that seem really complicated and complex with no easy solutions because I like to pick apart the knots. I like to untie those you knots, pick them apart at the edges. And I think. To be open to ways to do that, one has to be curious. I use a quote from Zen practitioners a lot when I do workshops about beginner's mind. Shunryu Suzuki says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. So how do I get myself out of being a PhD, an expert, and into a place where I have that beginner's mind, where the sense of possibilities, right, the landscape of, there are so many questions that I don't have the answers to where do I even start? Like to be in that space of possibility, to stay curious rather than to assume that I know enough stuff to, to have all the answers. If I could stay in that space, then, then I'm where I need to be.
0: I love that quote about the beginner's mind has so many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, it's so much more narrow. And I love yeah. that you say that you have an eternal thirst that's very, very poetic and beautiful. I think it ties in really nicely to this idea of hope. Hope springs eternal, right? If we're going with cliches. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a reason that behind every cliche is that essential kernel of truth that gives it its staying power, right? Exactly. Kevin, is there anything else that that I should have asked you or anything else that you'd like to share? No, I have really enjoyed
1: this conversation and how we've ranged over a number of different places. And so I've been really happy to to be talking with you. And I love the way that you range the field across both hope and practice, which I think are important to hold
0: in balance with one another. Excellent, I'm so glad. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed being with you today. Dr. Kevin Gannon is the author of Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto, and I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us, and as always, stay curious. <music> If you could be any character from the original Star Trek, who would you be and why? That's a tough question. Probably Scotty, because Scotty knew how to
1: fix a whole bunch of stuff. And I always thought that was really cool. I worked my way through undergrad as a mechanic in a bowling alley. And so that kind of lit the, I like to try to figure out how things work and how to fix them. And Scotty was the man. He could like use a roll of duct tape and a, you know, empty soup can and have the engines go and warp nine. So, so yeah, I would be Scotty for sure.